Hey everyone, this is Cobain. Today what I want to do is a discussion on prayer. This is going to be to some degree a summary of a series of videos that I did discussing the theology of prayer, why it's important to pray and so forth. But I wanted to put it all in one video which by God's will will be relatively short so that it is accessible to more people because I think this is the most important topic about which we can really speak concerning the theology of the spiritual life. Before we get into it, I want to just plug my Patreon for one. Uh, your Patreon contributions are instrumental in helping me to continue to produce this content and to continue to do the work necessary to keep up the channel. The top tier of Patreon guarantees you at least an hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion about an issue which interests you, and it usually goes far over an hour, but of course I'm not going to upcharge you for that. The other thing I wanted to say as far as housekeeping goes is that tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be doing a live stream uh, where you will be able to get your questions answered, especially if you use the Super Chat function where you're able to make a one-time contribution. You can also make a one-time contribution during the premiere of uh, these videos, including this video. So with that said, let's begin with a prayer, and then we'll talk about why prayer matters. Illumine our hearts, O Master who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires who may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy fathers from everlasting, and then all holy good, and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. To immerse yourself in a language is the most effective way to learn that language. But there's something important about the way in which you immerse yourself. You cannot use your native language as a crutch. In other words, if you live in China for three years and you can still get by on a little English and you allow yourself to use that English to get by, Immersion simply will not work, at least not nearly as effectively. But if you never allow yourself to use English, you will find that you assimilate the language, no matter how different it is from your native tongue, because you need to assimilate it. People often ask the question, why is it that God does not speak to people? Well, I would say that there are multiple prongs to that answer. The first prong to that answer is, in the way that people mean, why doesn't God speak to people? That is, why doesn't he speak to us using the words that are native to our language? Part of the answer is he does. In fact, there are quite a substantial number of credible experiences where God has directly spoken to people, some of which, uh, some of which I am personally um, aware. I'm not talking about myself. Um, I do know people, though, to whom God has spoken and whom it's very credible. I don't want to say more about that except just to point out that we shouldn't jump to the complicated aspect of the answer because in part there is a direct answer undermining the premise of the question. And I think the question is asked 
um, at least a substantial portion of the time with genuine curiosity and at least partially good intention. But another aspect of the answer is that what God wants is not simply for us to believe that he exists. In fact, believing that he exists can be a spiritually damaging fact about yourself if you have no intent of obedience. What God desires is for us to know him and to love him. And the reason that he desires for us to know and love him is because he is the one in whom all things exist. He is the existent one, the one in whom all perfections are perfect, in which all creatures find their completion, archetype, and paradigm. By the nature of the case, God is the only one who can be our supreme source of happiness. And it is not as if God is arrogant, the, on the only legitimately arrogant being that ever was or will be, because it is not as if God is one person. God is tripersonal. The Father is ever offering us the Son and the Spirit as our supreme source of happiness. The Son is ever pointing us to the Father and Spirit, and the Spirit always pointing us to the Father and the Son. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I must go away, but it will be a joy for you that I go away because I am sending the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, he does not testify of himself so much as he testifies of the Father and the Son. That is why direct prayers to the Holy Spirit are relatively rare in comparison to prayers to the Father <coughs> and the Son. This communion which exists among Father, Son, and Spirit is a communion of perfect mutuality, knowledge, mutual interiority. Perichoresis is the technical Greek term for it. And what that means is that the Father is in the Son and the Spirit. The Son is in the Father and Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father and the Son. And this mutual interiority is total. When we think about what it means for someone to know someone else, mutual interiority is implied. To know a person as what they are means that the words pr that proceed from their mouth genuinely reveal their character. They enter into you through your ears, their uh, light reflects off of them, enters into your eyes, and you apprehend them according to your pre-existing understanding of the certain qualities which you will come to identify with them. You have an idea of what love is, and so you identify a person as loving. But in identifying them as what they are, you come to also understand those qualities more deeply and learn something about yourself as well. Things about them come to be inside of you and the process of making themselves knowable in relation to you means that you also are interior to them. You'll notice the central role that language plays in this discussion. Language preeminently is that by which we disclose ourselves in specific, organized, structured form. Language is a sophisticated set of symbols by which we organize our understanding of the world. Because though God is infinite, he is not infinite in a disordered way. There is a very distinctive structure to his depth and infinity. The best way to analogize this is that of a fractal. Think about the way that fractals work. If you take a, a mathematical equation that is fractal in nature and you put it into a computer and it turns it into a visual image, you will find that, let's say you have a spiral and you zoom in and you'll find that 
this spiral is composed of miniature versions of itself and you zoom in again and that miniature version of itself are each composed of miniature versions of themselves and you can go in infinitely and you will always be finding more so we see that just because God is infinite that does not mean he is not also infinitely structured and it is the structure which allows for intelligibility so this structure is replicated in the creation and the creation declares who God is. We often read, I think, Romans 1 as saying that the creation declares God exists. And while it does say that, that is hardly all it says. The creation does not merely declare that God is. It declares who God is. And it declares specific qualities about him. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day to day, they pour forth speech. Night to night. They give forth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their voice has gone throughout all the earth and their words, their words to the end of the world. The psalmist elsewhere says that it is his supreme joy to know the thoughts of God, which nevertheless are more abundant than can be known. The sand of the sea is but a grain of sand in the infinite richness of divine thought. And when we recognize that the creation was made and fashioned as an imprint, as a symbol of the divine logos, of the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son in whom the Father knows himself by the Spirit, when we recognize that all things were made through him, well then we see that creation at its most fundamental level is an instance of God's speech to us. Why is it that God does not speak to us more frequently in our native tongues? It is because what he desires for us is to know his native tongue. He desires for us to ascend the staircase which is the creation, to behold God as he is. For creation is a symbol of God. It is genuinely correspondent to God. And yet, it is not God himself. The creation is like a shape which can be united with the particular shape of that which was imprinted. So I've used the analogy of the signet ring. A signet ring has, say, a crown that extends outwards in space, and you press that signet ring against wet clay, and it will create a space within the clay. And that space allows uniquely for the original ring to be inserted into it. The one corresponds to the other in such a way that the one belongs to the other. Its natural end is to be united with it without thereby losing its distinctness. Creation is thus a language. It is a complicated and elegant system of symbols wherein God discloses himself as supremely beautiful. God is good, meaning that God is goodness himself. To speak of something being good means that it corresponds to a great degree with the standard by which it is measured. A circle is perfect to the degree that it matches the absolute perfection of a mathematically abstract circle. And 
goodness is moral in character when the fulfillment of a thing's purpose or end, the motion towards likeness with that which is its archetype, belongs to the free power of will. So a person has the free choice to be what they were meant to be or not. And that is why goodness, in the case of a person, is not only ontological, it not only concerns what it means for the creature to exist, but it concerns what we consider to be moral or ethical in nature. Ethics is about the way one ought to be, and goodness is being. It elucidates the nature of being. The inner content of that goodness is beauty. Beauty, this elegance wherein diversity, plenitude, and unity are harmonized. Beauty is that in which there is no opposition between the one and the many, but the two complement each other. Moreover, they mutually necessitate each other. God is supremely beautiful as he who is one and three, not merely one and three, but he is one in his threeness, and he is three in his oneness. The very idea of what it means for a thing to be united, the very idea for what it means for things to be distinct, must be rethought and reconceptualized around our theology of the Trinity, for it is God alone who is the paradigm of existence. So creation is a language, and it is a staircase upon which we can ascend to the contemplation of God as he exists in himself, which transcends all language. You can see my videos on apophatic theology. But God made man in his image. God created man in his image. Now, what's important to understand is that the man here in Genesis 1.26-28 is not referring to an individual human being. It is true that every human person embodies the whole of human nature according to a unique rhythm or mode of individuality. The technical term is idiom. It's idiomatic expression. So I'm human in my cabaneness. I don't have human properties and then cabane properties on top of them. Rather, the way in which I am uniquely myself is the precise mode through which my humanity is uniquely expressed, just as God is God in three ways, fatherly, in a fatherly way, in a sonly way, in a spiritual way. Three persons, one God, each person is subsistence of the entire deity. But man, with a capital M in English, if you want to capture precisely what makes this concept unique and contrasts it with the notion of an individual person, man in Genesis 1.26-28 is the human family. It is one organism which grows as one, which is fruitful, multiplies, which branches and buds and is filled with life. Jesus is the archetype for humanity. And that is why it is in the Incarnation that he becomes the vine of the world's life. If you read Genesis 1, you find in its structure a complex and rich theology of what makes the creation itself. In traditional theology, we say that man is a microcosm, that is, he contains in miniaturized form all the information that makes every creature itself. In one sense, it's true that man, compared to the size of the cosmos as a whole, is as nothing. And yet, in another sense, the mind expands 
to transcend the size of the whole creation. Because think about it, we have the capacity to develop models for the wiring of the entire cosmos. Or are we simply going to say that spatial size is the only legitimate way to speak of significance or bigness. In fact, I would suggest that spatial size is one of the more pedantic, less significant ways in which we identify the significance of a particular creature or object within the world. Man encompasses the whole world because the world is only itself through man. Man grows and breathes in all of the creation, and in breathing it in, he comes to apprehend and understand it, and then in breathing out, he glorifies it. In Genesis 1, God creates the world. He makes it what it is by his speech. The Spirit hovers over the waters on the first day of creation, and inside the Holy Spirit in the cloud of his glory is the enthroned Logos of God. We, in fact, see this very same thing in Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, Israel goes through the Red Sea and thus becomes a new creature. And if you look at the literary structure of Exodus 14, you find that it follows blow for blow the seven creation days. The narrative begins with the cloud of God's glory, and we're told that it lit up the night, echoing Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 1, the first creation day, where God's light illumines the whole world. Moreover, we are told that as the cloud moved, so also moved the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, the head of God's heavenly hosts. We know that he is the pre-incarnate Logos himself. Because the angel of the Lord is the one whom Ezekiel sees in a chariot. And he says that he sees one in the likeness of a man, just as Daniel sees a son, one like a son of man. This is... Christ himself as he acts personally throughout the Old Testament. And so Christ descends on the world in Genesis chapter 1. And in him, God speaks things into being because it is in each of the words that God speaks that a thing receives its thisness, its particular mode of existence, the particular way in which it is beautiful. And we see three stages to the way in which God engages the world, each of which is a step higher on the thread of life. God speaks about the earth when he causes plants to grow. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, fruit trees, fruit bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And then God goes further. He enters into a more intimate relationship with the world on the fifth uh, creation day. Because this time, he not only says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, but he addresses them. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Notice here the echo of what was said in the third creation day. In the third creation day, God made fruit trees, fruit bearing fruit. And now he speaks to the birds and the fish and says, be fruitful. And so animal life incorporates the spiritual qualities of plant life, but in a more exalted form, which doesn't mean that plant life is then irrelevant. No, animal life exists in relation to plant life. They mutually uphold each other, but every mutual indwelling also has a structure to it, a hierarchy, a hierarchy which doesn't imply domination, but which implies glorification of both. And finally, in the sixth creation day, 
when God speaks this time, he addresses the Trinity. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, it's true that this language is used of the heavenly council throughout the scriptures. That heavenly council is that which exists in God's glory cloud. It has myriads and myriads of angels. And now, after the coming of Christ, many saints live in the heavenly council. But if you want to see that the root, the source of the heavenly council is the triune God himself, just look throughout the rest of Genesis, where repeatedly, when we are given these quotations of divine speeches, it is God said to himself, or God said in his heart. And why is it that plurality is given pride of place here? Why is it that God says, let us make man specifically here? It is because man has a likeness to God, which gives mankind the potential for union with God, for glorification, because man is a creature who knows and is known exactly and only through mutual likeness and distinction because here we are told that he made them male and female just as later in the text in Genesis 11 when God makes the human family into a multiplicity of nations he again will say let us go down and while he eradicates the multiplicity of their false deities corresponding to the tower of Genesis 11 tower is a temple it's a sanctuary he does not eradicate the multiplicity of their languages. He unifies their confession so that all call on the name of the Lord, but they call on the name of the Lord in their specific tongues, each of them revealing a unique perspective on who the infinite God is and what is the character of his splendor. But this time he does not uh, uh, address them merely, but he speaks to them. It's, there's a unique word used here. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, do it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God makes the world through the word, and it is the word who endows every creature with the particular beauty of its creatureliness. And it is man, the human family, as a plural unity, as a single organism. That's why man is symbolized as a tree throughout the scriptures, just as creation is symbolized as a tree. Man and the world correspond to each other. God's address to man here implies the possibility of a response. And indeed, this is exactly what we will see as we move to Genesis 2. For in Genesis 2, we are given a closer look at the sixth creation day. This time, God says it is not good that man should be alone. We see in Exodus 33 and 34 that God makes his goodness visible to Moses when he proclaims his name. Now, you look throughout Genesis 1, and God has been naming all of his creatures. He has been naming them, and he has been calling them good. Good because they correspond to a particular archetype, a particular kind of beauty in his own divine beauty. And so, when God here says it is not good that man should be alone, it implies that there is no lonesomeness in God, because God is tripersonal. How does God remedy this problem? Well, first, Adam must understand what God is saying. This is such an important point. In order for Adam to receive 
The degree of splendor which God wishes him to receive through communion, God must first expand his mind and heart through recognizing what is true about himself. That is why God brings the creatures to Adam. And Adam, in naming the creatures, he echoes what God has been doing. Adam looks on each creature, understands it for what it truly is, and gives it an appropriate name. And it is through this process of echoing back to God, but in a new way, God's own creative speech, that Adam assimilates the ideas of creation into his own mind. There is an imprint, as it were, of the blueprint of creation in the mind of Adam. And now Adam has understanding. Adam saw what God desired him to see. And Adam was put into a deep sleep. This is the evening, as it were. Creation goes from evening to morning, from death to resurrection, from planting of a seed to fruitful tree. Adam goes into a deep sleep, and he is divided into two. A side is taken from him and is made into a woman. And for the first time in Genesis 2:23, he is not called Adam, which is related to Adamah for dirt. He is called Ish. Ish is a pun on the Hebrew word Esh, meaning fire. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That is why woman is called the glory of man throughout the scriptures. Especially in 1 Corinthians 11, she's called the crown of man. In Proverbs, it is because man, to be glorious, must be engaged in relation with that which is distinct. And in that relation, both man and woman are glorified. This bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, bone, in the Hebrew word, can also mean self. Self of myself, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Note that this is the first time that we are given a direct quotation from Adam, and indeed from any creature, in Genesis. Adam has been glorified by coming to understand God's grammar of creation, and that glory is unveiled in speech. So what I hope you can see through all of this is that speech is creative on God's part. Speech from God sustains and constitutes the world. That is, everything around us is a outflow of a very talkative God. And he has immersed us in this world so that we can become acquainted with that language. What we call our lifetime is but our infancy, for God is growing us up into the infinity of his glory for all eternity. The one who dies in the Lord does not finish his main job. What happens is he gets a promotion. He's given a new robe. He's given a crown. He's seated on a throne in heaven. He ministers as a priest and king for the duration of the era of the church. We're told this in Revelation 20. It's a promotion. It's an exaltation. He continues to participate in the work of the church, but in a new and glorified way. That's the foundation for what we in Orthodox, Orthodoxy and Catholicism call the communion of saints. I've got a video on this specific topic. We are infants growing into toddlerhood, learning 
the first words of this divine language and coming to know God thereby because this divine language is the language he speaks from eternity. Matthew Bates in his book, The Birth of the Trinity, makes a fascinating point that in the earliest Christianity, in the first three centuries, the articulation of the divine identity of Jesus and the Spirit is most commonly elucidated by looking at those texts in the Old Testament, in especially the book of Psalms, where there is a conversation between two characters and seeing the fullness of what it bears witness to as a conversation between the personal father and the son. There's this language which is flowing always from father to son through spirit and back again. And God, through the same spirit, is incorporating us into that language. We see in everything that we've just said that God expands the human mind through the threads which bind together human persons with each other. It is through the dialogue between man and woman that both man and woman become more fully themselves into the image and likeness of God. Indeed, we see in Genesis chapter 3, Eve says we may eat of the... Uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now Eve has just been provoked to repeat back the word of God. This is how you teach children. Repeat back to me what I have said. What did I just say? Tell it back to me. You ask questions. This is what God does to Moses. When Moses ascends Mount Sinai and God is to proclaim his name, the Lord, to him, and a name embodies character, when God is teaching Moses about himself, what does he do? He says, what do you think about this? What if I destroy all of Israel and I make a new nation about, out of you? Do you think that's good? This dialogue between Moses and God is the way that Moses is being taught the name of the Lord, likewise in the book of Job. We begin with a vision of the heavenly court from which Job is excluded, but at the end of the book, God shows Job a series of creatures and tells him to explain the meaning of each of these creatures to him. This is the way God teaches us about himself. And indeed, you see, what is going on in Job is exactly what's going on in Genesis 2 and 3. Job is shown a series of animals, just as was Adam, and then... He is shown Leviathan, the dragon serpent. Isaiah 27 identifies, I believe, the serpent of Genesis 3 with this dragon Leviathan, who has eyes like the dawn, who's the king of over all, the, over all the sons of pride. There's a link between the beginning and the end of the book of Job. At the beginning, you've got Satan in the heavenly court. At the end, you have him shown to be the dragon, Leviathan. And then Job is brought into the heavenly court because Job is given the ability to speak to God in Job chapter 42, to make intercession for those three quote-unquote friends who sought to persecute him. Now here the three friends are three royal counselors, just as David has three royal counselors, Jesus as Peter, James, and John. Job is a king of Edom. He's mentioned by name in Genesis 36 as part of the dynasty of Edom. Jobab, Job is short for Jobab. These are three of his counselors who are falsely accusing him, and this has very serious political implications to bring a charge like this against the king. But Job makes intercession for them, and thus they are forgiven. Likewise, in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham makes intercession for Abimelech, and he is therefore healed. In Genesis chapter 18, after Abraham has gone into a deep sleep in Genesis 15, and the animals whom he offered have been divided in two, and 
divine fire passed between the two. Remember what we said about man meaning fire, ish and esh? This is where you see it playing out because it's the only two times in Genesis deep sleep is used, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. Fire passes between the two and the covenant is therefore made. And so by the time you get to Genesis 18, Abraham is a member of God's heavenly council. God says, how shall I do this without first consulting Abraham? Abraham is a friend of God, a friend of God. Think about the way that it was used in Job. It's a member of Job's royal council. Jesus says, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants. You don't just implement what I tell you to implement. You share with me the privilege of shaping the kingdom. Because there are infinite goodnesses in God, we can freely choose among goodnesses. And the choice is equally beautiful either way. Because if you think about uh, what this corresponds to in the catalog of human pleasures, think about when you're a kid and you've got a box of Legos, you can make anything out of it that you want. Does this mean that there is one thing in this box of Legos that is the best thing to make and everything else is just worse than it? No, there are multiple equally splendid things that you can make. And that is part of the delight, the gratuity of it. And that is one way in which we delight in God for all eternity. But Abraham, in engaging in this dialogue with God, comes to learn about God. God will never sweep away the righteous with the wicked. If you study prayer in the Old Testament, you will find that it is usually the prerogative of prophets to pray. Prayer is not emphasized so much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. That is because we pray by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who incorporates us into God's heavenly court because the heavenly court is formed in the cloud of God and the Holy Spirit is he who forms and shapes the cloud. We are told in the letter to the Ephesians, we are seated in heaven with Christ. Likewise, in the letter to the Hebrews, there, there is a great cloud of witnesses that urges us on in this race. Remember, the heavenly council was also the heavenly court, which is also the palace, the temple of God. In the book of Daniel, you see this heavenly council as a courtroom. The books are open. God renders judgment with the participation of his council. And when you hear about witnesses, this likewise is language which makes sense in the grammar of a court. Jesus in the Gospel of John is being put on trial by his enemies, but he in return puts them on trial. In the Passion narrative of the Gospel of John, we are told that he sat on the seat of judgment. Now, historically, this is Pilate, but there is a double meaning here because the nearest referent for the pronoun is Jesus. John's message is, while it looks like Pilate is judging Jesus, it is really Jesus who is enthroned, exalted, lifted up on the cross, and saying, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this age cast out. Jesus renders judgment on the enemy. The enemy does not render judgment upon him. Likewise, in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, we see they bring this woman to Jesus and they ask him to render a right verdict. And Jesus pardons her because he is the one who judges. The Father commits all judgment to the hand of the Son. 
So it is the spirit who forms the heavenly council, the heavenly court, which has these witnesses, judges, kings, princes, Isaiah 32, kings shall reign in righteousness, as princes shall rule in justice. The spirit enthrones us with Christ, makes us those witnesses, makes us those kings and priests to God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this by dwelling in us and gathering into our hearts the spiritual essences of creation and teaches us thereby about God in the person of Christ. Now, why do we pray for others? What is going on when we pray for others? Well, I want you to remember that there is one image of God that is the human family. And in the divine liturgy, we pray for the unity of all mankind in the church. Because in Ephesians 3, we are told that it is through the church that God has purposed to declare the manifold that is many-colored, multitudinous wisdom of God to the rebellious powers and principalities against whom we war. All of this is accomplished in Christ Jesus, in whom it was purposed from eternity, and through the church. That is... The church is meant to be coextensive with the human family. And if we think about what makes us ourselves, it's our relations, both with God, with the creation, and with each other, with other human beings. Who is it, or what is it, that makes the Father the Father? The Father is only the Father through the only begotten Son. And the relationship between the Father and the only begotten Son is characterized by the Father's production of the person of the Holy Spirit as gift for the Son. As St. Seraphim Mithrav says, he proceeds from the Father and rests in the Son. And that relation, the production of the Son by generation, the production of the Spirit by procession, and the gift of the Spirit to the Son, and then the reciprocation of that gift by the Son to the Father in thanksgiving, well, that is the pattern in which all creation exists. That is the pattern into which we are incorporated. But the personhood of each of the three hypostases is characterized by the unique relations they have with the other divine persons. So also is true for us. What makes you, you? Well, you have a specific relationship with every other human being. It is specific to you. No matter who you are, you have a specific relationship with me. We're all children of Adam. And if you map out the human family tree, we are so many generations or so many lines removed from each other. And if you comprehensively gave an account for everything that makes us ourselves on the human family tree, there would be a specific relationship, which is true of the two of us, and that relationship is true for absolutely nothing and no one else. Moreover, as we grow into ourselves, as we grow more distinct throughout our lifetime, because as we've talked about before, when a baby is born, he or she looks relatively similar to every other baby in the hospital. But as he or she grows up, we become more and more distinct. Life experiences come to shape the person. He makes choices which shape him, either for good or for ill. Perhaps his nutrition is reflected in his appearance. He might be malnourished. He might be uh, overnourished. He might be stunted in his growth. He might have a healthy, radiant appearance because of 
a healthy diet and a healthy pattern of living. Moreover, the clothes that the person wears say something about their history, say something about themselves, say something about the group they want to be identified with, say something about what they value. When you're in a particular job, you often have to wear a certain uniform because the uniform does, because clothes does not cover you up so much as it says something about who you are. It expresses you. When Adam and Eve, when they wore garments made of fig leaves, what it said is that they knew that they were naked and they had not the tool to cover it up. It was only through sacrificial blood that they could be covered, and that's what the meaning of atonement is. So why do we pray for others? It is because the relationships that we accumulate during our lives, the unique set of experiences which we have in relation to others, when we have a single conversation with someone, a unique relation is established with them which is never lost. It is a thread which binds the two of you together. And a person's individuality is captured in their name. This is why we recite names in the memory of God. We bring the Eucharist, which is the offering of memory, to the altar, and we recite the names of those who are alive and those who have reposed in the Lord. In reciting their names, we call them to our memory, and because we have the mind of Christ, they are thereby called to the memory of God. And it is only in the memory of God that anything can have eternal life at all. That is why at a funeral we say memory eternal, not let us remember such a, this person, for he was so nice, but rather may God remember them in his kingdom, because it is in his memory that all things have resurrection and life. All things were resurrected and baptized in the flood, so God remembered Noah and those who were with him. A thing is revealed as what it is by light, so when God remembers Noah at the end of the flood, he shines light on the world through the rainbow which is an exegesis of all the qualities which are latent in white light. So when praying for somebody, we call them to our mind. And in calling them to our mind, they become truly and really present to us. Memory is not a replacement for presence. It is rather a kind of presence. It is a mode in which a person becomes interior to yourself. If you've ever had the experience of thinking of a person and having them call immediately afterwards, you might think, oh, that's just chance and selective memory. You think about people all the time, and most of the time they don't call right afterwards, but it is so striking when they do that by chance you just happen to remember those and forget all the normal instances. Now, that's not a silly hypothesis, but it has been tested and disproved. I would recommend those interested to look at Rupert Sheldrake's book, The Sense of Being Stared At. You can read the responses by skeptics. I have read basically all of them. Um, and... The evidence here is quite overwhelming. There is a genuine connection between uh, uh, persons of a particular relationship. Uh, interestingly, this, what he calls telephone telepathy, it holds true to greater and greater degrees according to the intimacy of the relationship. It has absolutely no correspondence with the amount of space between two persons. And that itself has been specifically isolated and tested. So, I mean, this has been repeated thousands, tens of thousands of times. Okay, you can, the way you calculate probability is with a binomial distribution. Okay, you can look that up. You can calculate the probability itself with the raw data. You can run the tests yourself if you'd like. Um, I mean, I, I myself have actually run a great deal of, uh, of similar tests. Um, they're hardly the most controlled ones you can look up, but I'm, 
I affirm the legitimacy of this data because I know the data is real, but you can believe me or not. In any case, the point is that the memory of one person by another person is not something which just goes on in our mind. It has a real impact on the world. To think good thoughts about a person, well, that has a real impact on the world. And how do we sanctify our thoughts? It's through Christ. You know, we shouldn't dismiss instinctively. I mean, some people say you're a, a, you create new realities by your thoughts and intentions. It's not wrong. We shouldn't just wave that off as Christians. What we should say is that the only reality which there is is the one which exists in the love of Christ. And so to create a reality apart from Christ, no matter our intentions at the first, if it does not include Christ in the final accounting, it is going to be hell. Because there's nothing else. Christ In Christ there is infinite life. Outside of him there is nothing. Even the power which we perceive our temptations to have is borrowed power. Power belongs to God. Sin, when it is just sin, has no power or attraction. This is what C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters. In order to make sin truly attractive to anybody, it has to be combined with some virtue. To premeditate a murder requires some twisted form of courage, but Screwtape says this is a rather unhappy situation because it means that they have to leave God a foothold in a person who would otherwise be securely theirs, a foothold which God often exploits at the most inopportune time for the devils. God has partnered with us in managing and upholding the world. And he has called us to enter into communion with him, which means constant conversation with him. Because it is through conversation, through language, that creation came to exist in the first place. And if we are to become wise kings and queens over the world, we must engage in that with God and with each other in love. And that is what happens when we pray for another person. We call them to our mind. The connection which exists between person A and person B is realized, it's actuated. The wire is connected, so to speak. And then, having called them to mind, we at the same time call God to mind. Which we can only do because of the Holy Spirit in us. Spirit energizes from top to bottom to, to realize this whole process. He is the divine matchmaker, the one who links people together and links people to God. We call them to mind, then we call God to mind, and it creates a circuit. So God's life flows through us to those for whom we are praying. And that's the, if we might call it this, that's the theory of prayer. Now I want to say a couple more notes and then we'll finish up for today. Prayer works. It really, it, it genuinely works. I don't even know how long ago it was, but I started posting prayer requests on Facebook a very long time ago. At least it feels like a very long time for me. I'm sure it actually hasn't been that long, but it feels like a long time to me. Um, and I, it just started out as something I would do once in a while, but these prayers began to be answered. There's a wonderful story told by Rich Blesto. He says um, his, uh, uh, him, him and some other people decided what they were going to do is they, were, they went to the city council this is in a kind of progressive, secular city. And they started asking these individuals, are there things we can pray for you for? 
and many of them were very receptive to that. And they started to find out that their prayers were being answered. These are not Christian people. But these are people at the center of the city. And their prayers are being answered because Christians are praying for them. God wants us to give a new birth to the world. But to do so, we must be linked to that only source of life, the Father who begets the Son. And we can do that by praying for people. It does change you. And it does bring answers. I can tell you another story. In 2019, my dad's a healthy guy. He's in, uh, he just turned 60 this year, but he's a healthy guy. looks a lot younger than that. Um, he had a stroke. It was a bad one. It was a very bad stroke. It was a massive stroke. Um, my mother, by divine providence, had just gotten home, or was, was just about to leave, rather, and he had just gotten home. But uh, we didn't know how serious it was until later, but clearly he, you know, he started kind of uh, bending over. One side of his face was drooping. It was terrifying. Um, but I put out a prayer request on Facebook, and something really remarkable happened. I started finding by the end of the day that there were people whom I'd never heard of, who weren't even in social circles with which I was connected, one degree removed, who were sharing this prayer request on Twitter. People everywhere were praying for him. And when he got out of surgery, you know, he said, we just have to wait and see, but he had survived the surgery, which was not a guarantee. Um, and within two weeks, he was totally recovered. You would not have been able to tell that anything had ever happened. But here's the thing. Um, brain matter had already started to die when they began to uh, do the surgery. And brain matter is unique. It doesn't um, regenerate, but his did. It came back to life. I know that prayer works. And that doesn't mean that we always get that for which we ask. But we do sometimes. And I think we do more than maybe some people would think. When a child wants something, he always asks for it. He might not get what he wants, but he always asks. And it doesn't matter how trivial what we're asking for is as long as we're not just praying for things that we want and as long as we're not praying for things which God has prohibited to us we ought to ask God because if we receive something that we want but we haven't asked God then we're less inclined to give thanks to give thanks in everything we must pray in everything you do not receive because you have not asked is the scripture I remember another time I was, um, I had to wake up the next day and I was going through some very serious sleep problems. I have a video on insomnia, which if you struggle with it, some people have told me that it's helpful. Um, I was going through some sleep problems and I started just like coughing, not heavy, but I just, it was just this kind of scratchy cough once every 10 or so seconds. And I was stressed out. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. I have to, you know, wake up tomorrow. I forget why it was important, but it was. And so I took um, this oil from the relics of St. John Maximovich, one of my favorite saints, 
Um, you can actually, if you go to Holy Virgin Cathedral, you can order bottles of his oil for free. They will give it to you for free. They ask you to give a donation, but they don't. If you can't afford it, you don't have to give a donation. But I would, I would urge you to do so. Um, but if that's stopping you from getting the oil, please do get the oil, um, even if you don't donate anything. Anyway, I remember so distinctly <laughs> deciding to put a little of that oil on my neck, and I remember so distinctly having the conscious thought, "This is not going to do anything." And I'd been coughing for about an hour. I put it on my throat or my neck and I did not cough once more this is after about an hour of coughing once every 5 to 10 seconds I did not cough once more and that was an answer that God gave to a prayer that was made without faith but here's the the thing as God engages you and as he answers your prayers you do start to pick up snippets of the language which is always being spoken in creation I won't claim to pick up more than just snippets. This is a language we will spend all eternity learning. But there are certain ways in which God works with people that you will start to notice. And because God, uh, because everything exists, because God is constantly upholding it in existence, to look at anything at all and fail to see God there is to fail to see what you're looking at. If you see everything as a reminder of God, you will, number one, you will see God as, as, as beautiful and as attractive because the world is beautiful. It's marred, yes, it is, it's marred. But beauty and goodness are more foundational to what it is than the corruption. If you see everything as declaring him, as declaring God, you will be reminded of him more often, you will see him as more beautiful, and you will begin to pray more often. And it's a cycle um, it's a spiral, rather. You're more inclined to pray the more often that you pray. That doesn't exempt us from what C.S. Lewis calls the law of undulation. That's a topic for another day, but I recommend Screwtape Letters Letter 8, one of the most important things he ever wrote. Um, but it is a relationship which develops and which includes more and more of that which surrounds us in the redemptive work which is always growing in us. So, do pray. Um, more important than praying a lot is praying daily because if we only pray when we feel like it, well, then we're still just slaves to our immediate inclinations. But the more we can, uh, we can separate ourselves from our immediate inclinations to say yes to one and no to another, the more consistently we pray, the more distinct we become from those inclinations, the more our real self in Christ begins to emerge. Much of what we call ourselves is just a mixture of uh, uh, caffeine withdrawal and sleeplessness or oversleeping and various emotional changes. It's a wave which is here at one moment and passes the next, but there is a core to ourselves, which is the real person. And that core expands to encompass the whole person and beyond. And it will include others in that divine love which has expanded it in the first place. Paul says, open your hearts for us. He speaks of the church elsewhere as having one heart. Because as the Spirit of God works, the heart of every individual Christian grows until 
all of the hearts run into each other if you follow the imagery and it becomes one heart which encompasses all creation because the spirit dwells in that heart the spirit comes to dwell in the creation more and more perfectly and because the creation is born from the spirit in the first place it's born out of water genesis chapter 1 verse 2 because the creation is born in the spirit as we pour the spirit into the world it becomes more fully itself so that's what i have for today uh thank you very much for listening and i do hope to see you tomorrow on the live stream uh please do pray for me uh please also pray for a gentleman named timothy who is in need of prayer i should have said this at the beginning but if you've made it this far please just at least say a brief prayer for that uh, remember even a simple lord help cabane lord help seraphim is of infinite value so um you can at least say that uh and thank you to everyone who watches uh who contributes on patreon who participates in the discussion and especially who pray. So um, I will see you tomorrow.